Hello there, this is Jason Dees, and this is the Think Through It podcast. Think Through It exists to help people think through the big questions of life and culture. On the Think Through It podcast, we'll be talking with friends, cultural influencers, and forward thinkers about the things that all of us need to be thinking about. Today, I'll be talking with longtime friend, theologian, professor, writer, and fellow thinker, Owen Strand. Owen is a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and has written extensively, particularly on the collision of Christ and culture. Five years ago, I invited Owen to give a lecture on the topic, What Does It Mean to Be Human? at Valleydale Church, the church I was pastoring in Birmingham, Alabama. The topic seemed kind of edgy or novel at the time, but today, just five years later, it feels very mainstream. Owen actually has a book coming out in about a year that asks this very same question. And I would like to think that that lecture he gave at Valleydale in 2013 was the basis for what became the book. But today you get a precursor to Owen's thoughts as we ask this very basic question that in 2018 seems to be a question that everyone is asking. So thanks for joining Owen Strand and me today as we think through it. So, Owen, I don't know if you remember this, but five years ago, you came to Valleydale Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and you, uh, we, we did, I think we did a little interview in the morning service. We were in a sermon series at that time called The Art of Marriage, and we talked about gender, human sexuality, but then that night, you gave a lecture called What Does It Mean to Be Human? Mm-hmm. And now, you've taken that one little lecture at Valleydale... And turned it into massive volumes of work, at least one volume uh, of work. Uh, That didn't seem like that common of a question, what does it mean to be human, in 2013, which Mm -hmm. is five years ago. It seemed like a question that maybe we should start asking this. Now it just seems like everyone's asking that question all the time. So how did we get here where human identity, gender identity is so confusing. Uh, I mean, not, and not just human gender, sexual identity, mm-hmm. um, you know, just the, the human identity. I mean, in, in all senses of the word, how have we gotten here where we are so confused on what does it mean to be a human? Yeah, it's really the central question of the age now. Um, a generation or two ago, everybody was asking, is God dead? And so there was a great deal of talk about the death of God theology. I think if you wanted to reframe things, you would ask, is man dead? Uh, Is humanity dead? Meaning, uh, is there any fixed conception of humanity that endures and persists in the current day? And I think for a lot of people, not so much in terms of their lived experience, because most people continue to function (laughs) and move and have their being in the everyday sense, But not many people today, I think, who have been trained, for example, in a secular university or college, let's say, not many people are going to have a strong sense of what it means to be human. Well, it's the same thing with God, right? I mean, we still operate as if there is a God, yes, even though God may be dead, right? Right. But, you know, God didn't ever really die in the sense of functionality, right? It's just in theory. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the same thing with humanity. Yeah. Like we're still operating as if there's 
different sexes. You just can't define that. I mean, ha- absolutely. And people talk today about dignity and justice. I mean, justice is really the common word of the day, for example, uh, social justice being really the controlling category of human activity in the world, meaningful human activity. But the fascinating question to ask there is why? Why human justice? Toward what end? Who are we satisfying? In other words, justice makes sense in a Christian cosmological framework because there is one who is just. Where did we get the ends of justice from? Yes, but today you take away God. See, these questions are directly related, aren't they? God and man. Who is God? Who is man? You take away God, you you still have the impulse for justice, but you don't have any real framework for justice, any real deep reason for it. You know, you see wrongs committed, and you don't want that to happen, but you don't know why even right, there, right. why you really hate injustice. So yes, here we are uh, being asked these questions, our age uh, asking these questions, and yet very few answers out there. So it's a real... It's a real market play for the Christian worldview today to be operating. Yeah, it's it's as if you can't understand man until you understand God, and you can't understand God until you understand man. That's I mean, well said. I don't know if somebody said that mm. before, but it's as if that's true. That's money. So, uh, so, but, I mean, w- w- what we know mm-hmm. is that, obviously, this, this impulse toward justice— and our impulses toward a particular type of justice, we'll say, comes from somewhere. And obviously, we know it is the Christian worldview that created a thing that we call Western civilization. So, I mean, mm-hmm. would you could you help our listener that maybe hasn't thought about these things at this deep of a level? Just understand, unpack the statement I just said there. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? What is that? How is how has that given us maybe the values that we we now hold to? Yeah, I mean, such an interesting discussion because if you really want to trace it back, you have to go to the first century with the explosion of gospel-driven Christianity and what takes place in the Greco-Roman world in particular in Rome is that Christians are on the periphery but continue to have influence in Roman civilization and society to the point that uh, Constantine, who is who, who becomes jockeys for position to ultimately become the the chief of the four major Roman rulers, is the emperor. And then uh, after Constantine, it's not actually under uh, Constantine; that's under his successor, one of his successors. Uh, Christianity has made the official religion yeah. of the Roman Empire. What takes place after that? And we are massively condensing here, of course, but hey, it's a podcast, that's what we do, uh, is that for the next thousand... They're, they're listening to us on double speed anyway, <laughs> Owen, so... <laughs> that's right. It's doubly condensed. Yeah, yeah, just a moment for humility there to recognize <laughs> that. So for the next 1,100 years, you've you've got a more or less very nominal but Christ-shaped society, Christian-driven society in a lot of ways in terms of concepts of religion, in terms of the body politic being connected to the church. The first way to measure the state was to measure infant baptisms. So there is this major linkage in the West between the church and between the state to the extent that the Holy Roman Empire is supposedly the the key superpower in the world, and that means the merging of the church and the state, the Roman Catholic Church. That That all goes through a major shift in the Reformation era, as Protestantism develops and countries in successive centuries like America are formed, America being formed not as a Christian nation exactly, but definitely as a very religious-friendly 
nation, but not one, unlike the older Catholic model in which all the people are subject to uh, the theology and the, uh, the religious identity of the sovereign. So now in America, you have a very, as I say, religious-friendly body politic with tons of Christian activity happening. The other interesting thread about America, though, if we're tracing this out, is that America is really an uneasy marriage of the First Great Awakening and the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So you've got Mm -hmm. Jonathan Edwards on the one hand forming America in terms of his identity, in terms of the new birth, which is really, in some ways, a revolt against the established church, right? So that, that's key to American identity. You can draw a line between Edwardsian theology and the American Revolution. Not, not direct, but you can draw a line. And then you have, uh, you have uh, Ben Franklin yeah. and Thomas John Jefferson. John Locke. John Locke. Yeah. And his thought representing this other major wing of America. And I know I'm doing a ton of the aforementioned condensation, but America holds together in this marriage of... Edwards and Jefferson into the 20th century when things are pulling apart, and now in the 21st century, things really have pulled apart, and that all relates to humanity. Yeah, that's that, I, I actually think that was incredibly helpful, condensed, uh, bringing us up to speed. And really what I want, you know, the folks, if you're listening to Think Through It podcast, is like the value systems that we hold, our shared value, our shared understanding of justice— has come from something, and as Owen just described, that is traced back to first century Christianity, gospel Christianity. I I refer to it this way. You have Christianity, and then you have what I call Western Christianity. Mm. So Christianity is what we know as Christianity in Christ, faith, Mm -hmm. salvific faith in Jesus. Western Christianity is the system of beliefs, the system of activity, the system of role Mm -hmm. that Christianity built, it's not salvific, it's not right. spirit-filled, it's not supernatural, right? but it, it, it carries a value system, it carries a law with it. That's really well said, and we are in uh, such a fascinating age to think through Western, what you've identified as Western Christianity, because largely there are two responses to it in our time. Either it should be burned down because it fostered a kind of civil religion, or we should keep it because it fostered a kind of civil religion and it made America great, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And so to be somebody who actually can pull that apart and see the good, all the tremendous good of the broader Christian worldview, right? which is real, uh, but also be able to critique it, now, now you're doing fancy footwork that we need to do. Well, and so, yeah, and I think I always say, like, as a Christian, the secularization of America, uh, you know, in, in some ways as a Christian— Christianity, I, you know, I, the, well, the, the, the secularization of, of America is helpful because it makes Christianity more distinct. As an American, the secularization of Christianity is harmful because it's, it's ruining, like you said, mm-hmm. the, those good, you know, common grace kinds of things that Western Christianity has, you know, given us. So, yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting thing to think through, right? Um, especially in this secularizing age. But, but yeah, but I guess what I'm, what this, the point of this podcast is that we're losing Western Christianity, mm-hmm. whether that's a good thing for the church or bad, right. we can d- debate that on another podcast. But so what does that mean? The fact that Western Christianity is, is giving way to secularism. Obviously, we're asking questions like, what does it mean to be human? How, how can we expect for this thing, for that question to tease itself out in the next decade? 
Well, let's beyond. see. I've already I've already condensed two millennia of intellectual history. So now I'm going to tell the future on this. Po- this isn't. Wow, you are you are getting your money's worth that, out of this hey, podcast. My I friend. want I want a time machine. That's what, I, okay. Here we go. The flux capacitor. Ooh, I want Back to the Future one and two right now. Wow. Okay, I just we just need a moment of silence to ponder. <laughs> That's just amazing as a concept. Um, yeah, I think we are in a time in the 21st century, early 21st century, when things are secularizing. And so that's, that's meaning that there is an erosion of the American public square and body politic, as many people on all sides have observed. Uh, the core is not holding, really, and increasingly we are in essentially all-or-nothing kind of territory where either you affirm me in full or, or you know, I'm seeking to burn your shop down and you're seeking to burn mine down. And and that's lamentable. Sometimes people say that, and what they really mean is it'd be better if everybody was just kind of squishy in their politics. So that's not really what I mean by that. I do think, though, that America's had a, a tradition of civility that is helpful. And if you think about the kind of Christian influence in this country, you're thinking about things like the pro-life movement. You're, you're thinking about a movement of dignity for different groups of people who do not enjoy those privileges in other countries. America has never been perfect, of course. As soon as we're talking about these things, we have to acknowledge that America has has had major, major flaws and failings from the start, Uh, most essentially slavery and the slave trade, and then that leading into Jim Crow law and, and other things in the 20th century. So look, no one's trying to present America as if it is the new Israel. It never has been. But things are eroding in this country. Free speech is being lost. The right to practice, practice your religion according to your own, your own uh, conscience is being lost. Those are not good things. There is a linkage that you can draw, in fact, in America between uh, America's kind of free market support of all religions or many religions and the growth of the evangelical church. You can draw that line. You can make that connection. Sometimes, in other words, you hear the line that things will actually kind of be better if America secularizes because then we'll see, we'll see things as they really are. There's truth there. That is true. You will see who the true Christians are. When that tends to happen historically, here's the deal. There tend to be a lot fewer Christians. Right. And there tends right. to be a lot less Christian activity. So as a thought experiment. It's, it's a more pure church, but it's a smaller church, right? It's a smaller church, and... There's a lot that goes with that, honestly. Well, and, I, and I've said I, something that you should probably do, Owen, is look at history. So I think like an interesting case study mm-hmm. would be, uh, you know, you look at times in in history, uh, you know, the early church, for example. Yes, the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and there Amen. was a there was a, a massive expansion of Christianity against all odds. Right. But then on the other side of the coin, you look at the Act of Toleration, 1689, and what do you see there? A massive expansion of the gospel. I mean, and so... Right. Yeah, and so you can't really make a case historically for one of the other. God has used both to grow his church or to refine his church. Yeah, I mean, think about, um, think about France in Calvin's era. Very similar to what you talked about just a minute ago, 17th century England. I mean, if you think about France... Uh, and and Switzerland, where where Calvin is, though he's a Frenchman for most of his career, Calvin is able in Switzerland to send hundreds of church planters into France, because in Calvin's day, in like the mid 16th century, France is more tolerant right, of yeah. the Protestant movement. 
Calvin dies, and there's a massive crackdown by the Roman Catholic Church on Protestant activity in France. And what happens is the church shrivels almost to a remnant of itself. I mean, just a tiny, tiny portion of what it was. And so what that means is, here we go, true Christians stand out, and that's not a small thing. I write a lot on Jonathan Edwards, who believed in true Christianity basically above all else in terms of major ideas that shape the world. So I love true Christianity. I don't want nominal Christianity, civil religion to flourish. But you do have to handle with care because in addition to civil religion and nominal Christianity falling away in these kind of moments, as in France back in the day, as in England uh, under persecution, and now in the 21st century in America, as secularism increases and encroaches, there, there also are going to be a lot less Christian works, a lot less right. missions sending, right. a lot I less mean, money for right. ministries. And so it, it, it definitely has the potential, at least, it definitely has the potential to clarify the church, but it also definitely has the potential to hurt Christian work, Christian sending, gospel ministry, and oh, by the way, the only models of it that we have culturally, socially, tens of thousands of people are being murdered by their own government because they're not going along with the totalitarian regime that reigns. Right. So secularism is <laughs> has historically proven to not be a happy place uh, to be. And so yes. let's just see, I mean, you know, but we're, no, we're no. on the ride and we trust that his kingdom is forever and Christ is reigning. And so it'll be interesting. The next decade will be an interesting one to journey into and you know, I'm glad to be journeying into it alongside you, brother. Amen. Let's well, be faithful as we do. Well, I, I, I affirm that totally, and I, I feel the same way. I'm thankful for brothers like you who, who do not uh, flinch. But you do, you do have to just kind of quickly splice secularism, right? Because I went to a—you went to a secular school. I went to a secular school. My secular college, Bowdoin College, was rated by Princeton Review as one of the 20 most secular colleges in the country while I was there. So here's the deal. Among the secular faculty, there was not a single evangelical on faculty out of 160 professors. Um, some of those secularists, and they weren't all the same, right? right some right, of them right. were even religious, but we're just we're grouping broadly here. Uh, some of them practiced what we would call old school toleration and and free thinking, and they loved it. They loved that Bowden mushy middle, yeah, yeah, and they loved that Bowden drew students from all yeah. different groups, yeah. and that's kind of what what uh, the American public square used to be. You know, it used to be come one, come all. Some people today are still like that. We're in Atlanta. Some people in Atlanta think that way. Some secularists do not think that way. Yeah. Some of them are playing for keeps, and they don't want a come one, come all public square. They want a public square that is driven by some narrow ideology and uh, and some some sexual codes and things like this. Uh, Al Mohler has said that erotic liberty is the new major value of, right, of yeah. the West, right? Not religious liberty, erotic liberty. I mean, America's founded because of religious liberty. Now it's really erotic liberty that's driving the conversation. So you asked about the prognostication of the church in, in America. You know, you're going to see that collision continue to unfold yeah. because some secularists are kind and nice and like diversity, truly, genuine diversity. Yeah. And some do not. And that's true open-mindedness. It, it, it seems to be, though, Owen, I think if you study history— that all worldviews are ultimately totalitarian, right? I mean, I think that the the dream, the secular's dream is that everyone would would adopt a totalitarian. I mean, and even like the, the Christian 
worldview too is ultimately in the new heavens and new earth right totalitarian right there, there's going ultimately. to be a king who reigns now how we operate here and now we we operate not with the sword right we have not been given the sword mm-hmm. we have been given the spirit and the word and so how we operate now is with a posture of humility and love um, but one day, you know, yes. all worldviews, and I think that's true of the seculars too, no, no matter, the mushy middle seems to dry up uh, in a shifting world. But anyway, it'll be interesting to see. Well, we don't have much more time, so let's get to the, the point of the question, what does it mean to be human? Mm. Wow. What it means to be human is fundamentally to be in the image of God. It means to be made in the image of God. It means that your value does not depend upon your gifting or your talent uh, ability level. It means that you are a spiritual being created in the image of God to know him and glorify him and worship him forever. Now, because of the fall of Genesis 3, the image is marred in humanity, but it is not lost. And so humanity is a fundamentally religious deal. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. cannot get out of the spiritual nature of humanity. And That's so good. what we tend to do in our fallenness is we spiritualize natural things. We, we, make, we make lesser things uh, gods. We worship them. We make, uh, we make the created order our idol in all sorts of different ways that we could spell out, you know, if we were going to take more time. So um, we, as Christians, have a ton to offer today to this roiling, crazy, out-of-control public conversation about what it means to be human— and we, we have a few quick things to say. We have to say that every human being has equal value. Some, some pigs are not more equal than other pigs, to quote Orwell. Uh, we have to say that we are fundamentally a spiritual being, so our, our, our core identity is not in sexual uh, attractiveness or uh, wildness or political uh, allegiance or something like this. Our core identity is spiritual. We have to say that uh, we should value all human life Uh, in whatever stage and age it comes. And so Christians have major contributions to make to the public square and and then to teach in the church itself about what it means to be human because we have lost sight of humanity. The book I'm writing that you referenced earlier is called Re-Enchanting Humanity, uh, Biblical Anthropology for the 21st Century. And the core concept there, playing off of the philosopher Charles Taylor, is that we've been disenchanted. So we think we're just a clump of cells as kind of enlightenment philosophy and and materialist science leads you to think, well, I'm just a clump of cells. There's no ought to my body. There's There's nothing I should be doing. There's no obligations I have. There's no God. And we are saying the opposite. We are saying you are made in the image of God you have uh, obligations and duties before God, and you have infinite value as the one made by God, even though you have fallen. Yes, and amen, brother. Free us from this materialistic mindset we have found ourselves in to what is true and real. Yes, uh, and uh, and God's design. So, when do you do you have any idea when it's due out? It's coming out, uh, Lord willing, next fall, fall 2019. So I've actually submitted it to B&H Academic, and it comes out. And I'm hoping it'll be used by, by churches and in classes, university and seminary. All You know, <laughs> what author doesn't say this, but everywhere it can be used, I'm hoping it'll be used. But I mean, seriously, the, this is the question of the age. Well, and, and, and I feel that a lot of Christians in their... This is what I run up against, is Christians need to feel equipped to not withdraw from these kind of conversations, yes, but to actually engage in these conversations in a loving but informed way. And I think everything we've talked about today, you kind of have to know, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have to have at least a condensed understanding of Western 
Western civilization, you have to have at least a condensed understanding of biblical anthropology uh, in order to really engage these ways in, in the kind of way that will be winsome and ultimately, by God's grace, will be salvific. Mm-hmm. And so that's our hope and prayer. Uh, and this has been a super helpful conversation. Owen, always, as always, so grateful for you. And uh, thanks for coming on the Think Through It podcast. Thanks a ton, my friend. For Owen Strand, I'm Jason Dees, encouraging you to think through it. Thank you.